running now, huh? Okay, fine. We are now on the air. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Bone Ditch by Ian Bird. My name is Ian Bird and this is Bone Ditch, my collection of kitsch eldritch scritchings, short stories set in a world where catastrophe is an infectious virus and patient zero, typhoid Mary Poppins herself, is a long dead witch who is still keeping all of her eyes on you. You can always find out more about my Bone Ditch project at my website, www.boneditch.wordpress.com, and on Twitter I'm at Mr Carapus. Tonight's story is the last part of my trilogy about three strangely familiar women who were transforming themselves into powerful creatures of chance and will. Last time we met Bonnie, the engineer inspired by a tyrannical lover to create a virtually indestructible war machine, and before that Jessica, who would grow up to be a brilliant detective and storyteller. Now we are about to meet Margaret, home from the war, and ready to face the skeletons in her family's closet with a skeleton of her own. Tonight's story is called It Brings On Many Changes, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. The war ended, so Margaret had no choice but to come home. It was the first day of March 1983. Margaret had been away now for over a decade. Really, could that have been possible? Off the airplane that had flown her free at last, she looked at her reflection in the mirror in the airport bathroom. The same bouncy curls of unruly blonde hair, streaked now with more grey, perhaps, than the silver that she remembered. The same bright eyes and hot lips, the same intelligence and will behind the round, attractive face. But her spirit, her strength, was tested now. It wasn't beautiful gossamer potential any longer, but forensic evidence. There was no mistaking it. Even in this silly silk dress, her uniform finally stashed out of sight in her luggage, she had been to war. While she'd been away, her husband had divorced her and her father had died. Both had been military men, so the army was taking its leave on her on every front. But no, enough of that self-pity bullshit. She was a major in the US Army. She was still in her forties and she had all that experience and discipline within her. Whatever came next would be bolstered by these strengths, these possibilities. Margaret had commanded a nursing unit in a mobile hospital on enemy lines, patching together soldiers all but ruined in battle. She had been the backbone of the service, she knew, providing willpower and skill and compassion. She had been a crucial part of something crucial. And what was she now? An orphan and a divorcee? She growled in opposition. No, she just had to get back to work, that was all. On the flight back, she had been reading an article about a new weapon that had been built the year before. A thinking, reasoning, intelligent computer, apparently, embedded within a virtually indestructible vehicle. No doubt it would be at the vanguard of the next war. Yes, because in a world capable of engineering horrors like that, there would always be a need for someone who knew how to patch people back together. But a few months to patch herself back together first would be a good idea. Margaret had wanted to fly back home to the States, but Sarah had asked her to visit to help take care of things. Sarah was her father's second wife. Her father's widow, she reminded herself. Dad had moved to England in the mid-70s, once he'd retired, to start this silly second family. Sarah had been 20 years younger than Dad, an executive for a chemical company called Salt that had been affiliated with the army. It had been sordid, in Margaret's view. Her mother had been a quiet, diligent homemaker, a good woman who had raised three children in her husband's image and then died too young. And her father had merely replaced her with a rapacious career woman who believed in profit and luxury. Margaret didn't understand why Sarah had asked her to come to Britain. To help take care of things, that was what she had told her. But Sarah had been a widow once or twice already before. It wasn't like she needed the support figuring out how it worked. Sarah had never even taken Dad's name. She had remained Sarah Kant. Besides, there was nothing of her father's that she wanted to inherit. Margaret had inherited enough from the military already. For instance, 
There was a bullet gouge across her midriff that had been stitched almost to invisibility. There was a burn across her back left from a midnight explosion. Wounds that had been tended by her friends back at the hospital. Accidental love answering inevitable war. She had had quite enough of the military now. Margaret stopped off in Tokyo on the way back. A stolen weekend, a last fling. She had seduced her pilot, a laconic southerner with a bourbon voice and puppy eyes, one of those Chuck Yeager wannabes, and had let him pretend he was introducing her to Japan for the first time. Men liked to do that, and she often let them. After midnight on their second night together, she had let him convince her to fly them to a mountain village outside of Osaka. She had awoken the next morning on a tatami mat in their room in the Ryokan. The pilot had still been asleep, the air had been cold. Margaret had tied her robe around her and stepped out of the building into silent mist. This place was a collection of dark, rich wooden buildings, their outline in the fog like leviathan bones, but at the heart of the village was a burst of orange. Not a furious fire, but a blossoming peach. This village had grown out of a Buddhist monastery, and its core was this scrubbed bloom. Monks moved between their temples, following their silent pre-dawn rituals. The air smelled of incense, not cordite. The silence was the silence of peace, not the fear of being detected. Yes, Margaret had come for the sex, but she had stayed for the dawn. She watched the monks as the sun slowly rose, its pink fire echoing the buildings, enveloping them all. Margaret realised that there were tears in her eyes, and that she didn't want to go home. She walked back to the inn, threading her way through the wood and the mist. She thought she might have felt embarrassed in just her robe, but she walked with confidence. Military gait. Western arrogance. Gaijin naivete. At the entrance to the inn, she turned back to look through the woods. A small outline suddenly moved in the green-grey shadows of the glade. It surfaced and curled and swam back under the fog, like a carp in a pool. Margaret traced the shadow through the oblivion. She thought she could see it standing still, a tiny, coiled shadow among shadows, a figure watching her watch it. She was looking at what was going to happen next, she knew. She was waiting to see what shape it would take. Margaret hoped it wouldn't be in uniform. Her friends in the field hospital had hated the army. They had been doctors and nurses in their real lives, dragged out to be a part of the worst thing in the world. Sometimes that stress and horror had taken root in them, revealed something hideous in their bones. Give me at least one nurse, one of these doctors had said once, who knows how to work in close without getting her tits in my way. Frightened, horrified and horrific little boys, who had still come scratching outside her tent each night. But Margaret had always taken comfort in the rigour and structure of the army. It had been a robust skeleton, a coherent philosophy, in spite of its cruelty. A necessary cruelty, she believed. That line of Milton's, it had burnt in flames but not in light, rather a darkness visible. It had been something she had been taught to believe in from a very young age. From the first age, in fact. It had been the thing that her father had abandoned her for time and time again, so it had to be worth believing in. The shape watched her. The gist of a ghost. It wasn't in uniform, it wasn't even in flesh. Bones stood like wood, dark and ancient, a structure being built or being burnt back to the ashes. Her pilot had saluted her when he had dropped her off at the airport in Narita. He had liked that. He was already looking forward to the next war. He was a lifer. Did you believe in the war? He was asking her, flirting. I didn't have to believe in it. It was pretty hard to mistake for something else. Well, you know what they say. There are no atheists in dog holes. Foxholes. Margaret corrected. Don't mind if I do, he had grinned. Yes, just another lifer, scratching around the inside of her tent. Don't worry, he had assured her later, as if to a subordinate, even though she had at least 15 years on him, even though she outranked his commanding officer. There won't be another war. It'll just be the same war. There's always someone about to cry havoc. 
and let slip the dogs of war, Margaret finished, returning the salute. Look me up, Major, he said. Given he was counting on war, and given he knew what she did in wartime, she was pretty sure that he was just being polite. But that was last weekend in Japan, and now she was in London, and it was a Tuesday. There was more concrete in the fog now, less green. Sarah had sent a driver. Margaret sat in the back seat and watched as grey city roads were overtaken by the manicured countryside. Darling, Sarah had said, opening the ludicrously ornate and oversized front door to her. The driver saluted them both and drove off. That was Sam, Sarah by way of belated introduction. He lives by the lake house. He was our factotum, our majordomo. Sarah laughed. Although, of course, I suppose you're our majordomo, really, Major. Margaret hugged the widow. How are you, Sarah? It's been brutal, darling. He went far too soon. Far too soon. Like your Donald in that respect. No, not really, Sarah. Donald cheated on me with everyone I outranked. Well, that's men, Margaret. They'll chase you to a standstill, and the second they have you, they're looking for an escape route. Your father knew what he was doing. All those cigars, all that whiskey. All those late nights looking for an escape route. Margaret noticed the martini glass in Sarah's hand. Do you have more than one of those? Oh, darling. Men don't make passes unless you drink from tall glasses. Sarah referred to it as Margaret's father's house, kept making noises about selling it now that she was so very alone, but Margaret knew the truth of it all. Sarah had earned the money that had paid for this luxury home. Her work with the chemical firm had been astonishingly lucrative, especially to an older man grown thin on an army pension. He had invested in Huey and Colt, but she had invested in software and genetically engineering firms. This was the house that Sarah had built. And she deserved it, Margaret found herself admitting, as she slumped into a sofa that looked out through huge glass doors across a battlefield of a lawn down to a misty lake. The lake was so large, all the English air was so foggy, that Margaret couldn't even see all the way across it, presumably to Sam and his off-spoken lake house. How had her father settled here, among Brits and sofas, when his whole life had been regiment songs over scotch and a small study cluttered with badges and medals and the most lethal souvenirs he could smuggle out of the country? There was a photo of her father and Sarah on top of the grand piano. In it, Margaret's father's face was split open in a roar of laughter that she couldn't remember ever having seen herself in person. He was fat in the photo. That gunmetal hair receded to wisps of fog about his flapping ears and that iron jaw now swaddled, swaddled in rolls of well-fed wattle. Just how long had it been since she had last seen her father? You look gorgeous, darling, Sarah said. Thank you, Sarah, she replied. There isn't a law, you know, about you calling me mother. You're only about ten years older than me. Oof, don't remind me. Excuse me, Margaret said. I mean, just look at you. You're gorgeous and I'm practically a crone. That's a long ten years, isn't it? And that's war, you see. That's what your father always said. You spend all your time surrounded by young warriors living on a knife's edge. Keeps you vital. Spend your days cheating at bridge with a retired soldier and you get older, faster. I'd have rather been back at war. No, you wouldn't, Margaret said. Do you think so? Sarah mixed them some more drinks. She put on some music, the Goldberg variations, but on one of those ridiculously modern small silver discs, half the size of an LP, that ran off lasers or something. Margaret watched her stepmother operate the computer and thought about the intelligent program someone had built into an indestructible war machine. Margaret felt that back in the war it could still have been the 70s, even the 50s, as easily as it had been the 80s. The cliché was that technology needed a war to advance, that something wonderful always came from that catastrophe. But Margaret had seen precious little of that. I was over in the States with your father last year, did you know? Sarah asked. Margaret frowned. No, I didn't. You should have said. It would have been closer for me to visit. Does it work that way? 
Well, no, but if you'd come to California, you could have come just a bit further to Japan. I could have had a release to Tokyo. Darling, Sarah said, you were at war. You were doing your duty, just like your father taught you. There was no way you could have met up with him before he died, and he knew that. You didn't let him down. You were a good daughter. You honoured him all the way out there, and that gave him a lot of pride. Besides, there was so little of him towards the end, he really didn't want anyone to see him that way. Sarah sat back and listened to the music, written in 1741 and being played by a laser beam. You know, Sarah said, they've put this music on a satellite and sent it off into the cosmos. They want aliens to think, when they find it and listen to it, that this music represents what we're like as a species. What do you think, darling? Will that make the aliens more or less likely to invade? No one likes a show-off after all. Anyway, while we were in the States, Danielle Beecham, you remember her, she introduced me to this strange old bird. Alice Sheldon, her name was. Her husband is Ting Sheldon. You remember him? Your father worked for him for a while in WW2, out of the Office of Current Intelligence. Anyway, old Alice, she was one of us, you know, married to a much older military man, someone to outrank you. Donald didn't outrank me, Margaret added. Anyway, she met Ting in the war, the proper war. Apparently, the night they met, she challenged him to blindfold chess. She beat him, and they fell in love. They've been together ever since. But for years, it seems, Alice has been writing these science fiction stories, doing very well with them as well. Your father had read some of them. Very strange, she said, but convincing. But she'd been writing them as a man. Alice invented this man called James Tiptree Jr. and pretended to be him. She made all these friends pretending to be a man called Tiptree. You know, that's the name of the village not too far from here where they make the jam. They unmasked her, though, a few years ago. Stripped her of her mask, left her naked. Back to being Alice and everyone thinking her a liar. What a shame. They killed him, really, didn't they? Why would they do that? A clever woman has to work so hard to get a good mask. Why take it away from her? Sarah looked sadly at her stepdaughter. Why take that away from her? They stayed up drinking. Margaret blinked herself awake and found herself still on the sofa, under a blanket that Sarah must have left before she retired to bed. The room seemed larger in the dark. Sarah had left on a light by the piano, but the rest of the room was steeped in the darkness that was crowding outside to get in. Margaret went over to the patio doors and opened them wide. The night rushed in and the fog, and Margaret stepped out. It was colder than the mountain outside Osaka, but the night and the fog were the same. She walked out onto freezing cold grass, the mist snaking around her ankles, winding up around her legs like a length of ivy or an attack of snakes. Her eyes became accustomed to the dark almost immediately. Years spent staring into the night looking for threats had given her exceptional night vision. Back in the war, her friend Charles would have scoffed at that, called it romanticised claptrap. But then the second he had seen Bark played by laser beam, he would have stormed off, calling it unfeeling and soulless. Charles lived in a very narrow spectrum. He had that luxury. She probably wouldn't see her silly old friend again now. A fox was suddenly in front of her. She was big, her fur a rich red, even in the gloom of the night, and her eyes reflected the light from the house behind Margaret in tiny blue points. Her fur was tight on her face, her strong pointed snout quivering slightly as the animal sniffed at Margaret. The longer she looked at Margaret, the larger those eyes seemed to become. Margaret was frozen, this beautiful creature. She smiled. There are no atheists in... And suddenly something reared out of the fog behind the fox, wrapped itself around her and dragged her back into the night. There was a single yelp and then utter silence. Margaret felt muscles tense in her back. Her body still knew when she was at war. 
She looked out of her bedroom window the next morning. The sky was bright, but there was still mist clinging to the surface of the lake. Sam, Sarah's driver, was down on the grass, hosing the lawn. There was a bin liner at his feet, stuffed with something. Margaret watched Sam clean up, before showering, dressing and wandering downstairs to find Sarah. She was at the breakfast bar in her enormous kitchen. A Bloody Mary was at Sarah's elbow, but she was studying a textbook and a couple of heavy-looking magazines. There was a notebook beside her, full of that private language of hers. Darling, Sarah grinned, let me get you a drink. It's a bit early for me, thanks. Is it? I've been up for hours. What are you reading? This is Centre for Disease Control's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. And you can concentrate on that with Bloody Marys. Darling, it takes a Bloody Mary for me to even consider the ramifications of this. Margaret poured herself a drink. At a girl. They chimed their glasses together. Have you noticed the smell? Sarah asked. Margaret paused, then nodded. You mean the lack of smell? No cigars. I keep thinking about starting to smoke them myself, just to get that smell back in the house. Do you think Sam would start smoking them for me if I asked him nicely? Is that part of his job description? Of course it is. Factotum. The delivery of day-to-day ad hoc activities. It's practically textbook. Sarah looked down at her textbook. A nicer one than this, certainly. What are you reading about? Retroviruses, Sarah said. Sexually transmitted blood-borne infectious agents. They think they've found another one. Is this about that thing in New York, Margaret said, that's killing gays? You have been away at war. Last spring, the CDC estimated that tens of thousands of people might be affected. They even gave it a name a couple of months ago. That can't be right, Margaret said. Tens of thousands? Why isn't anyone talking about it? Because it's just that thing in New York killing gays, darling. Is this really your field? Sarah scowled. There's connective tissue everywhere. This article suggests pathogens that target specific behaviours in specific communities. In this case, specifically the gay community. I work with people who have made millions in that field thinking about new ways of targeting. And, of course, my stepdaughter is a nurse, so I have a professional interest. I don't feel like a nurse. You're acclimatising to life after wartime, that's all. When do you report back? I've got a little while yet. Sam walked in on them both. Sarah beamed at him and poured him a Bloody Mary. I hosed away the blood, he said. Put the body in the bin. Thank you, sweetie, Sarah replied, leafing through the magazine. You know how squeamish I am. Body? Margaret asked. We found a dead fox on the lawn this morning. Well, most of one. I saw it happen, Margaret said. Sarah raised her eyebrows. Poor thing. I've never seen anything like it. A badger, I suppose, or another fox. Well, actually, Sam said, it had been pulled to pieces, ripped to shreds. I think it must be a couple of dogs in the neighbourhood, their blood up, itching for a fight. No, said Margaret, that wasn't it. There wasn't any noise. Whatever did this wasn't fighting, it was just striking, and it was definitely on its own. Ah, smiled Sam, sneaking a grin in Sarah's direction. It was probably a crocodile then. We've had lots of trouble with crocodiles in the neighbourhood lately. Sarah laughed and refilled all their drinks. She was a glass half full, full sort of person. Margaret made her excuses and left them to it, whatever it was. She spent a couple of hours sitting down by the lake. Even as the sun rose higher, parts of the water remained hidden by the early March mist. She was still getting used to the quiet. Back in the hospital, even between those mad sessions when the ruined and the dying were brought into them to be saved or sacrificed, there was never any quiet. Senses were always listening for the bullet. Every sound and glimmer connoted some unknowable threat. Margaret breathed air that carried no trace of cordite or gore and felt her heartbeat slow. She was aware that the dead fox didn't concern her at all, that whatever had snatched it in the mist was just living its life according to its principles. She had told Sarah and Sam that she had never seen anything like it. 
What an absurd lie to tell. Less than a month before, she'd been in the practice of warming her hands over patients' open chest cavities. Margaret had a strange kind of empathy. Sometimes she felt her heart break with the pain she witnessed. Other times she suspected she was only impersonating those emotions and that her authentic reality was less sensual, less flabby. She pictured bones. Margaret imagined tens of thousands of people threatened by a virus that had only just been named, casualties on a global scale, millionaires investing in methods of extermination that would have been unfathomable to the soldiers she attended to just a week before. She imagined these things while sitting next to the sculpted lake in the middle of a spring garden in England. She quite liked the easy humour of Sarah and Sam. She was just disappointed that she was the butt of the joke as usual. These people, these people everywhere, they preferred it when you were one thing and not another. But Margaret had never been that way. She'd always straddled perspectives. Back in the war, the doctors had made fun of her rigidity in the face of chaos. She had been Army with a capital A. But the Army had looked at her and seen just another nurse, a pair of hot lips whose job was not getting the doctor's way or to get pregnant. Sarah and Sam were looking at her and seeing the shifting mist of her different natures, that oddball without a plan, that control freak who did everything the Army way. But she was clearly both. Margaret decided to spend the rest of the day in the sun. Sarah came down and sat next to her for a couple of hours, leafing through a couple of vogues, a couple of morbidity and mortalities. Sometimes she discussed Princess Di. Sometimes she gossiped about how a repressive organising authority might use willfully specious misinterpretations of epidemiology as a rationalisation to design and implement socially conservative dogma. Meanwhile, Sam worked the garden, mowing the lawn, weeding the flower beds and pruning the fruit trees. Bees seethed in the air, their mouthparts smeared with viscera, while the mist seeped into the undergrowth, fueling the unstoppable rot. And Margaret sat in the sun and felt all the violence all around her, bugs eating bugs, worms turning in the dirt, life falling apart. There is only one war. As the sun began to set at the end of the day, Sam came over to her. He was carrying a shotgun. He noticed her attention to the weapon. Yeah, I'm sure you've seen bigger, but this is England, you know. We take what we can get. You're on a hunt, are you? she said. He laughed. The only thing that's allowed to kill things in my garden is me. Do you mean my mother's garden? He grinned at her. You're funny, you can stay. But don't touch my weapon, no matter how hard I beg. She couldn't be bothered to deal with him, scratching around outside her tent, but she didn't feel like moving. He was attractive, several years younger than her. He probably didn't waste too much time wiping the blood from his face. Always a good girl, always an accommodating guest, she smiled at him. A little later, Sarah brought out hot toddies for them all. Sam made a big point of patrolling the whole expanse of the garden, working on his thousand-yard stare, sniffing the air deeply for signs of the passing of the predator. He's trying to impress you, said Sarah, by shooting some small animal to death. He knows where I've been the last ten years, right? He's English. He speaks the language of poets. What's his story then, Margaret asked. I knew you were interested. Margaret shrugged. Well, I think it's sweet, Sarah said, and I'm not sleeping with him if you were worried. I wasn't worried. I was sleeping with him. Margaret turned to look at her. But I stopped when your father died. It didn't seem respectful. I'm not familiar with that battlefield tactic, Margaret said. Don't be coy, sweetie. Your father was a wonderful man, but an atrocious husband. I'm sure you'd figured that out. I've looked at love from both sides now, and it's far more enjoyable being his widow than his wife. We were happy together, but we were never what you would call conventionally married, were we? Margaret looked at her, checking her stepmother for vulnerabilities, but also for gossip. I had no idea. I thought you were happy. I thought you'd found his match at last. And how many times, darling, did your mother tell you not to play with matches? Your father was not the marrying kind. 
Margaret nodded her head once. He had affairs. Darling, that's putting it mildly. He was gay. There was a scream, and Margaret was immediately her best self. On her feet in an instant, she ran towards the scream, into the night fog that had surrounded them while they weren't paying attention. The scream was human. It was Sam. It sounded nothing like Sam, but Margaret knew the different sounds a human could make. Not the defiant yell of a man under attack, but the postnatal howl of someone who had just had their future ripped out of them. She came to him, lying on his back, twitching, his hands buried in the mess of gore just above his waistline. Still alive, though. Good. Slit open, not pulled apart. Still breathing, still conscious, still with a chance. The first rule was to ensure that the environment was safe. It clearly wasn't, but that couldn't stop her saving his life. She was a nurse. She knew all the ways a body could be violated, but also all the ways it could be put back together. This was her best self. The war hadn't ended, only changed its shape. There were no helicopters beating the air down above her, no doctors barking orders, no support staff, but she knew what to do with a wound, she knew what to do with a patient who needed her. It was merely difficult, and she had been comfortable with difficult all her life, one of the many lessons learnt from her father, from living with him. Sam was on the couch now, back in the living room, and the patio doors were closed and locked and the bleeding had been stopped. It had looked worse than it was. She had stitched him closed, brought down his temperature. Sarah wanted to call a doctor, but Margaret stopped her, not entirely knowing why. She knew a flesh wound from something life-threatening, she told herself. She knew what was best. She only half realised that she just didn't want strangers in the house while she was learning about her father. You think a badger did that? said Sarah, shocked. Or, Margaret hesitated with the recognition, feigning shock. This was no badger accident, she said. A mad dog then? I guess it must be. You know, they changed the law a couple of years ago, changed the legal definition of zoos. They say that lots of private animal collections had to close and that animal owners often just let their animals free rather than face the expense of selling or rehousing them. They say there are panthers and jaguars out in the wild now. Nonsense, Margaret said. Then what on earth did this? Margaret didn't want to tell her stepmother that an animal would have left parallel gouges across Sam's body or about the distinctive puncture wounds that left by bite marks. She didn't want to say that Sam's wound was a single slice of something swift and sharp and hard. Margaret was thinking bayonet. She was thinking human. Margaret was thinking war. So why not call the police? Why not call an ambulance? Why not get help? She glanced over at Sam's shotgun. She didn't trust another medic to take care of Sam, and she didn't trust a policeman to protect her mother. She didn't need other people. She knew what was best. This was her best self. I don't know, Margaret said, but he's okay. He'll be awake soon. We can ask him then. Sarah stared at her stepdaughter. You know something, don't you? You know what happened. What aren't you telling me? I'm trying to take care of things, Sarah, that's all. That's why you asked me to come here, wasn't it? Your father always said you were a monster. He never said that. Margaret was smelling the blood in the air. He did. He. Margaret cut her stepmother off. Dad said once. He said I was a witch. Sarah stopped trying to talk. I was ten, Margaret said. Burns, our dog, got into a fight. He was badly injured. He'd lost his eye. His spirit had been broken. We found him in the morning, lying at the foot of the garden, unable or unwilling to come into the house. Dad took one look at him and said Burns needed taking care of. He meant the opposite, of course. He fetched his shotgun. Margaret glanced here at Sam's weapon and told me to say goodbye to the dog. Margaret's stepmother looked scared. I told Dad not to do it, that I could fix Burns. 
He didn't believe me, of course. He thought I was just being weak, that I preferred Burns to suffer than to have something to do with that would hurt me but would stop him suffering. I told Dad that he was wrong, though, that I'd fix the dog, and that if I didn't, I would shoot Burns myself. That satisfied Dad. And then I took Burns away and I fixed him. How? I really don't remember, but I took care of him, nursed him properly. I made him well. He was as good as new at the end, and Dad called me his little witch. I was his witch, not his monster. Your father, less than a year later, Margaret interrupted. Burns was hit by a car. It didn't kill him, but it broke his back. Dad told me that I'd failed, that Burns wasn't fixed after all, and that now I had to shoot him. And a deal was a deal, so I did. And Dad was right. Killing Burns was far easier than saving him. Dad was always fond of those things that looked hard, that were actually the easy way out. I think it would have suited him to have been a martyr. Margaret, what have you done? They both heard the noise, outside in the garden in the dark. What is it? Sarah gasped. Was Dad happy living here with you? He was. He was very happy. He loved life in the army, but then he retired and he was so relieved. Now I can be me, he said. Did you always know he was gay? Of course I did. I wanted him to be happy, Margaret. But Sam, we have to take care of Sam now. The thing in the garden hissed. It knocked over something, but didn't scuttle away. It wasn't afraid. Sarah and Margaret heard it gather itself up. Margaret, who is that out there? It's a souvenir from the war, Margaret said. Margaret, Sam. He's fine, Margaret said. I promise. He's out of danger now. I've taken care of the wound. But you can't take care of me, can you? You've never needed taking care of Margaret. The army took care of you. No, the army just put me to work. I take care of myself. Sam groaned. Sarah thought the worst, but Margaret knew that this was a good sign. Mother, can you get me some towels and hot water, please? Sarah backed out of the room. Margaret had always taken care of herself. She understood this differently to her father. Her father had been content to follow orders until he had followed enough of them to be permitted to give his own to other people, to have others make sure he was happy and comfortable. And that had been her role, to take his orders, and that had been her mother's role as well, and that had been the role of all those dogs of war he had directed into harm's way. That had been Sarah's role in the end. She had been his last dog of war. But Margaret... She understood it differently. She didn't need to be coddled. She didn't need to do her duty either. She needed, she needed to fulfil her purpose. The army had insisted that she be a nurse, but Margaret wasn't entirely sure that was true. She had gone to war to fight. No, she was a warrior. Margaret had a tear in her eye. She cried. She cried havoc. And after all those years at war, Margaret was suddenly full of a wonderful and terrible clarity. She switched off the lights and she opened wide the patio doors. It skittered in. From the bare moonlight and the sounds that it made, sounds Margaret recognised from anatomy lessons and a thousand midnight surgeries, it was a length of spine, or possibly three, flailing to move across the floor like an octopus. A splayed ribcage, or possibly three, helped finger the creature's way towards Margaret and Sam. In the centre of the skeletal mass was a face, or rather something that had once been a face, set into a jagged mask of bone. The mask looked from Sam to Margaret, an unblinking, hungry glare set like a jewel in each of its three eye sockets. Margaret had not gone to war to be a nurse. That had simply what she had been good at. She had gone to be a warrior. This beast truly was her war souvenir, her actual better self, the one that runs towards screams and only sometimes to help. She sensed this thing was injured, weak, needed taking care of. 
You need to keep your strength up, Margaret said to the beast, still doing what she was good at, but now being honest and true. Finish your dinner, she said. The creature didn't hesitate. It whipped a spine up to the couch and pulled itself across the room, up onto Sam. He opened his eyes and froze in terror. The creature dislocated its jaw, revealing row after row of chisels, needles, knife blades and scalpels. It was a doctor's bag of teeth. There are no atheists in dog holes, said the creature, and its voice was a woman's voice, or rather several women's voices, laid over one another like a choir. But sometimes the dog hole is a ditch, and you can find anything in a ditch. She swallowed Sam whole, skin and bone and eyes and teeth and face. He screamed all the way down. His throat bled with the force of his shrieks. Those voices one on top of the other, an exquisite corpse of different women, nurse and warrior together. Her strength was in her multiplicity, her ambiguity, which. Satiated, the creature looked at Margaret, and Margaret smiled back. Sarah came back into the room with towels and a basin of hot water to find Sam sleeping peacefully and Margaret wrapping something in a blanket. I thought I heard something, Sarah said. It was nothing, said Sam, calmly, suddenly awake. We took care of it, said Margaret. The next morning, Margaret packed, ready to start moving. I wish you would stay, Sarah said. I have to get started, Margaret said. Don't be angry at your father. She hugged her stepmother. I was never angry with him. I was just sad not to have ever known him, really. What I could see of him, I love very much. Thank you for taking care of him. I see a lot of him in you. And I see a lot of him in you, too, darling. I think what you see, said Margaret, carefully weighing her words, was what I thought I saw in him. I think I became someone a little different than what he hoped. I wish you'd have come back sooner. Margaret finished packing her bags into the boot of the car she had hired. Sam, or whatever the thing upstairs was that looked like Sam, wasn't well enough to drive her away. Among her luggage was a carefully wrapped blanket and something within that slept peacefully. I love you, mother. Margaret said, and she got into the car. Sarah beamed. I love you too, Major. Margaret strapped herself in. Where will you go, Sarah asked. I've got a patient to take care of, she confessed, so I think I need to find somewhere quiet and peaceful for a few days, for some R&R. Your father and I went to a lovely place last summer, Sarah said as Margaret started the engine, down on the Kent coast. We hired a cottage in the desert. Desert? In England? It calls itself a desert. It's beautiful. It's called Dungeness. Then we'll start in Dungeness. Margaret waved a final time and drove off. We, said Sarah to herself. Margaret switched on the radio and she and her war witch and the blanket sang at the tops of their voices and she drove away for some rest and recuperation. To be continued. <laughs>